Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Now we're turning again to Paul's letter to the Philippians, and today in chapter 2 and verses 12 to the end of verse 18 on page 981, if you're using the large print version 1165. Um, I love the pace of the accompaniment for that lovely hymn, man who rejoiced in the name of Tobias Klauschnitzer, I think would have approved of the ancient European pace. So, with these completely irrelevant remarks, obviously, let's read what really matters. And uh, we're in a section of Philippians that began in verse 27 of chapter 1, which Paul is urging the Philippians to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all, and likewise you also should be glad and rejoice with me." I'm sure most of us have used the expression, going from the sublime to the ridiculous. And we might be forgiven for thinking that that is exactly what the Apostle Paul does here in Philippians chapter 2. The preceding verses, as you know, are among the most sublime verses in the whole of the New Testament. There is probably no place in the New Testament where Jesus Christ is more wonderfully described or more highly extolled. So when Paul was writing these verses 9 through 11 about Jesus Christ being highly exalted and then being given the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Kurios, Jesus Christ is Lord and God, the great early Christian confession, so that every knee ultimately will bow to Him, 
whether they are in heaven with him or on earth as we are today, or if they experience the judgment that Paul describes as being under the earth. Every tongue will confess, willingly or unwillingly, that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, He's taken us to the highest position in heaven, and He has previewed the end of time, every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then He seems to shoot down from that to this exhortation that by comparison seems almost ridiculous. The implication of that is Christians don't grumble. Christians don't grumble. The exhortation is not, although it would have been altogether appropriate, so Christians sacrifice everything and go to the ends of the earth, not counting the cost to make the name of Jesus Christ known. That would stir the blood. But don't grumble. Don't live in Grumble Street. The vocabulary of English grammar when I was in secondary school was always a little confusing. Always a difficulty deciding whether something was synecdoche or metonymy, as I'm sure some of you would have had. This whole list of words that describe the way we speak, and you kind of felt, can't the English teacher just let me speak the way I speak without telling me all these figures of speech? And so, when I read this passage again and again this last week, I thought, ah, this is what I was taught. This is bathos, B-A-T-O-B-A-T-H-O-S. Bathos. This is going from the heights to the bathos to the depths. But lest I made a mistake, I looked it up in my Oxford English Dictionary. And my Oxford English Dictionary gave me this wise word of caution that bathos is unintentionally going from the important to the trivial. But haven't I just said that Paul goes from the important to the trivial? Well, no, because our faithful Oxford English Dictionary tells us that bathos is the unintentional going from the exalted to the trivial. And the whole point of what Paul is doing here is he does it with all deliberateness. As though to say, and remember what David said to the children, as though to say one of the great hallmark differences between you as a Christian believer and our twisted and darkened generation is that you don't live in Grumble Street. You live in Sunshine Road. Your life is marked not by complaining and moaning and groaning, but your life is marked by gratitude for the gospel. 
if you have bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I think this is actually the real point of Paul's therefore at the beginning of verse 12, if you have bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, then the disposition of the Lord Jesus Christ begins to invade the disposition of your Christian life. And the one thing that's very clear about our Lord Jesus Christ is that He never grumbled under the providences of God. And the one thing that is characteristic of non-Christian human experience is that we do grumble under the providences of God. And alas, that is not something, if I understand what Paul is saying here, that is not something that is instantaneously driven out of me when I'm brought to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm more like Lazarus coming out of the tomb with the grave clothes still on me, and I need the whole of my Christian life to be the untangling of those this-world characteristics until my submission to the Lord Jesus Christ becomes very evident throughout the whole of my life. And all this is set in the context of the exhortation in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now. So his point is, Jesus Christ was obedient to his Father, verse 8, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so what marks the Christian believer is the Christian believer imitates the Lord Jesus, has an image of the Lord Jesus embedded in his or her life, and as Christ was obedient to his Father, so the Christian believer becomes obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Or to put it in very simple terms, for the Apostle Paul, because he sees, Romans 1.15, his commission is to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. It's not possible to have Jesus Christ as my Savior without simultaneously seeking to yield to Jesus Christ in everything as my Lord. You cannot have half of Jesus. You cannot have the Savior without having Him who is also the Lord. And so, this is a very powerful exhortation that Paul is issuing. But what strikes me as being endearing about it is the, the mood in which he expresses himself. Um, it's deeply pastoral. You notice, for example, that when he speaks to the Philippians, he speaks with great affection. Beginning of the first chapter, he described them as saints, and then in the middle of the first chapter, he described them as brothers. But now he describes them as his loved ones. Um, that's language we usually reserve for family, isn't it? Um, you and your loved ones. And, and that's what he's saying. He's He's been a spiritual father to them. He has this bond with them. And so he addresses them as the ones he loves. He is saying this to them 
simply because He loves them. And He's saying it to them with words of great encouragement. I'm not telling you to do something you've not been doing. I want to encourage you to go on being what you have been, as you have always obeyed. So, he says, keep on obeying. And then there's a little touch of fatherly, or perhaps in your experience, it might be more like motherly concern. Just as you have obeyed in my presence, I want that obedience to prove itself by you being obedient in my absence. Um, when the cat's away, the mice will play. But if the mice are Christian mice, then they will live as though the cat was still present. Um, it is easier, isn't it? It's easier to do almost anything so long as your, your senior is there. If you're a, if you're a young doctor, it's, it's always easier to do things as long as you know the buck is not stopping with you. Um, if you. If you are into sports, characteristically, you will do better when your coach is there helping you to make any necessary adjustments. But the the real indication that something has changed is that you're the same when they're not there as you are when they're there. And that was Paul's longing. And I think he had good reason for that longing, because it's, it's very easy for us to live the Christian life surrounded by pastoral supports and to assume that that's the whole and real truth about us when these supports are removed. Um, we may discover the extent to which we, in this case, were obedient because, well, if the Apostle Paul is here, you'd better be obedient. I remember a very trivial, most of my examples are trivial, but I remember a very trivial experience of this. I think it was 23. I was a new minister. I was in a city center church that was hugely well attended in the summer Sundays. It was standing room only. I'm talking 50-something years ago, and I was preaching one Sunday night, and the phone rang about five o'clock in the evening. A voice uh, unidentified said, who is preaching in the church with St. George's Tron? Who is preaching in St. George's Tron tonight? And I just said the two words, I am. And the phone went down. And although I was young, I, was, I also had a dark side. I thought I would put good money on the fact that that person will not be there in church tonight. And what he didn't know, it was a he. He didn't know I recognized the voice. And I looked for him in the congregation. And no, he wasn't there. And I'm sure it never crossed his mind, it never crossed his mind that my boss, who was a very famous preacher in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. My boss would never be able to say to anyone when they 
asked him about his congregation, you know every last one of them comes out on a Sunday night, even when it's the boy who's preaching. And you see, they thought they were, they thought they were above that kind of thing, when in actual fact what they were demonstrating was that they were obedient when he was present, but when he was absent, when the cat was away, the mice could go out to play. And so it's not surprising, it's not surprising that Paul had this pastoral concern for them. Um, he was a minister after all. He wasn't, he wasn't a dentist who could see the back of you as you left the chair, still frozen, thinking, well, I've fixed that for the next 10 years. No, Paul says here, my concern about you is that in terms of spiritual ministry to you, only the day of Jesus Christ will declare the fruit of what has been done. And so you feel this enormous sense of Paul drawing the Philippians in and drawing us in with affection and with encouragement, but, but also with that little note of concern. Uh, maybe, maybe that morning he'd been reading about King Joash in Second Chronicles 24, who we are told did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the high priest. But as soon as Jehoiada, the high priest, is removed from the scene, idolatry comes in. So, this is Paul's deep pastoral concern, and he expresses it in two particular exhortations. The first in verse 12 and 13, and the second in verses 14 through 18. And both of these exhortations have a surprise, I think, built into them. The first one in verses 12 and 13 is actually, I think, an apparently surprising exhortation, although it has a wonderful supernatural motivation. The surprising exhortation, work out your salvation. And I think if you were a relatively new Christian or, or even just new to Philippians and were just trying to work out what is Paul saying here, that would come as a surprise. Because one of the things you've learned about being a Christian is that salvation is not the result of your works. You've been reading Romans 3 by works of obedience to God's law, no one is ever going to be justified. Or, or you've been taught to memorize Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and 10. But we are saved not by works, but by grace, through faith. And even that faith is not our own doing, it's the gift of God. There is no place for works when it comes to our justification. But Paul isn't thinking here just about our justification. And you'll notice the language he uses is not, you've got to work for your salvation or you've got to work up your salvation. He's saying earlier on, God began a good work in you, a work of salvation. 
And now, if that's a real salvation, it's going to change your life. There is no salvation that flies over our heads without actually touching and transforming our lives and catching us up so that we actually live as people who are being saved. And this is His exhortation to us, to work out or to work down or to work in or to work through, and in that sense to work out into the whole of our lives, the salvation that we've been given in Jesus Christ so that we actually begin to look as though we are saved people, rescued people, transformed people. Work it out, he says. And then he adds, and do this in fear and trembling. That gives us pause, doesn't it? Uh, This is not a fear and trembling world we live in. But the Christian works out his or her salvation with this sense of awe and reverence for this reason, that as we seek to live out the Christian life, Paul says, it is God Himself by His Holy Spirit who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's interesting, isn't it, as Christians, certainly of a a generation, uh, we we love to hear people sing the old spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And we love to hear that line that said, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. And we thought nothing of it. That's appropriate. The Son of God giving His life for me, of course, that makes me tremble, not because I'm terrified, but because I'm overcome with the reality. But now you see, Paul is simply extending that. He's saying, if you tremble at the notion that the Son of God has loved you and given Himself for you, why would you not also tremble at the fact that He gives you His Holy Spirit to indwell you, to transform and sanctify your life, and to make your life a temple of the living God? And you see, He's really really getting to the heart of it. We we were singing earlier on in the service about the Word of God breaking through everything into our hearts. And here's a point at which the Word of God breaks into our hearts, that we would be filled with awe that what it means for us to be Christians and to live in this world is that God Himself, by His Spirit, by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus, has come to indwell us, to transform us from the inside out, to make us like the Lord Jesus. No wonder there would be fear and trembling lest for a moment we grieved the Holy Spirit. It's as though Paul is saying, if I can put it this way in more modern parlance, if we really believed what we say we believe, we would work out our salvation in fear and trembling, because we know that it's God Himself who is working in us to will and to perform of his good pleasure. 
It's amazing. It's interesting, isn't it? This was almost the last thing Jesus taught the disciples in the upper room the evening of His crucifixion. Listen, my children, with awe, He is saying. When I go from you, my own Spirit is going to come to you. The Spirit you have seen on me, you know Him, said Jesus, because He's been with you. You've seen His ministry in me. You've seen the invisible Holy Spirit working in my life, equipping me to serve God, sustaining me through every difficult providence, carrying me now to obedience to the death of the cross, that very same Spirit is going to come and indwell you. Not some other Spirit. Not some other Spirit. Not some Spirit who comes to you from heaven having bypassed the whole of the Bible's history, but the very same Spirit who dwelt on the Lord Jesus for those 33 years or whatever and was with Him. That's who is going to come to indwell you, to make you like the Savior. Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble when I begin to believe what I've always said I believe, that it is God who is at work in me to will and to do of His good pleasure. So, this is, I think, a surprising exhortation. Work out your salvation. It's not that God works and you don't work. It's that God, by His Spirit, catches you up so that what He has given to you in Jesus Christ begins to work through into every aspect and dimension of your being. But if that's true, then the second exhortation is in many ways just as surprising because it's an apparently mundane exhortation. But the surprise here is the striking implications it carries. What's the exhortation? Well, he says, do everything without grumbling or disputing or complaining. I think there's some indication just from the language Paul uses here that he's, he's thinking about Israel in the wilderness those 40 years and how they murmured and complained and disputed with Moses, and they were really murmuring and complaining against God. Remember in Numbers chapter 11 what they complain about? We've got no leeks here in the wilderness. We've no cucumber here. In the, there's no garlic in the wilderness. How utterly pathetic they were and how sadly pathetic we sometimes can be as well. The grumbling, the background music. And this is, this is Paul's concern. Now, whether he is concerned because of what he has heard, or just in general, I think actually it looks as though he's heard something, don't you? 
I mean, this isn't something he's writing to all the different churches. I, by the way, one of the implications of the gospel is you don't grumble. So I think he's heard something. Um, we've referred to these dear ladies in chapter 4 that he asks to agree in the Lord, Euodia and Suntike, and it looks as though there had been grumbling. So he's, he's putting his finger on the spot. And he's saying, you don't grumble if the mind of Christ is your mind. You don't find any grumbling in the Lord Jesus. And if the mind of Christ is your mind, then you don't live on Grumble Street either. And what strikes me about the implications of that exhortation here is threefold. The first is this, that Paul is giving us indication here that salvation affects the very details of our lives. Some of you will know uh, the late Jerry Bridges' fine book called Respectable Sins. Respectable sins. And grumbling is sure one of them, isn't it? Um, being the kind of person who doesn't suffer fools gladly. Being the kind of person that complains about bad service. Uh, I'm not uh, a shrinking violet. I'm open with my grumbles. And then you read through the Gospels, and you can mark in red, if you want to, the number of places you can find where Jesus is grumbling and complaining about His lot. And you realize that this respectable sin is sin. Because, to put it simply, it's so unlike the Lord Jesus. But not only does this indicate to us that the gospel works into the very details of our lives, works into the background music of our disposition. Well, I'm just wired that way. Things irritate me. People seem to get things so wrong so often. No, says Paul, it's a denial of your salvation because salvation affects everything in your life. And then he points out that these details, and it's interesting that he pinpoints these details, it's these details that are going to affect your Christian witness. It's like this. Uh, you've got a new dress, you're going to some social occasion, and as you step out the car, it's raining and a spot of mud goes on it. Or if you're a bride, you may have had the horrible experience of the same thing. Or if you're a man, you should never travel with a silk tie. Always use the kind you can wash because the soup, it's Murphy's Law, the soup is going to end up on your tie. Or if there's just a little pimple when you're going to something where you want to look your best. Why does that concern you? Because you know it is actually the one thing people notice. It's the one thing people notice, and they'll remember. Oh, yeah, you're the fellow that turned up. 
It's the small things, the tiny things that seem to seem to affect the whole thing so that it becomes the one thing people remember about you, one thing people say about you. And it can be as simple as grumbling. You leave the room. I often think the really important thing is not what people say to you when you're in the room. The really important thing is what people say about you when you've left the room or what they think about you. I'm glad he's gone. He never stops moaning. She's such a whiner. And you see, it affects our witness. That's why Paul is saying you should be blameless and innocent, and you can, you can feel the reflections of the Lord Jesus here who was blameless. He was a lamb without spot or blemish, children of God, because, because grumbling rather suggest you were brought up in Grumble House in Grumbling Street instead of in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation so obsessed with itself that we, we must be one of the most thankless societies in the world. We, we look at other societies we see on television, we wonder, how is it that these people with next to nothing are so happy by comparison? Well, it must be genetic. It must be the sunshine. And Paul is saying, if we are Christians, we're called to shine as lights in the world. And remember where he gets that from? He gets that from the first half of Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. And you remember what, what enabled Jesus to say they were the light of the world. It wasn't rocket science. It was that they were poor in spirit, that they were meek, that they were loving, that they were gentle, that they were kind that instead of moaning about how difficult it is to be a Christian, they knew they were blessed if people persecuted them and did all manner of evil against them falsely for Jesus' sake. That's what makes us shine. It's salvation being worked out into our lives in this kind of Christ-likeness. And how does that happen? Verse 16 is the answer, because we hold fast to the word of life. That is, to put it simply, because we get to know God's word, and we seek to live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, every single word. My friends, I wonder how careless you and I are about that, Grumbling isn't the only respectable sin, but we can be careless about those sins because we're not into the big sins. But that disposition in me indicates I'm, I'm not living by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. You think that would be a bit extreme? You know the story of uh, the great 17th century preacher by the name of Rogers? to whom a man who knew him said, I like your company well, Mr. Rogers, but you are too precise. 
And he said, well, sir, I serve a precise God. You play football or watch football, you are very precise about the offside rule. It's not salvation. Or if you play golf, you are very precise about the fact you're not supposed to improve your lie. And if anyone transgresses that precision, all hell is let loose. Shouldn't surprise us in a twisted and perverse generation if people think that as Christians we are too precise because we live by the Word of God. But we are no more precise than they are with the rules of football or the rules of golf or the social etiquette. And what transforms this is that we know that the Spirit who indwelt the Lord Jesus enabled the Lord Jesus to live by every single word that came from the mouth of God. And that's what creates light. And of course, some of the children, if you're you're at the shore this summer, uh, in the rocky bits of the shore, you'll, you'll love to lift up the rocks and see the beasties who have been hiding in the dark flying away because light has invaded. And so it shouldn't surprise us that if our lives are light in the Lord and we shine, that this crooked and perverse generation will say to us too, you are far too precise. You're like that old Puritan Richard Rogers. So this not grumbling is important because it's an indication that the gospel has affected the whole of our lives And it's important because it is going to affect our witness, the difference. And just not grumbling, that's a huge difference in our day. But there's a third application that Paul makes here, which is really interesting. And actually, it takes up half of this section from verse 14 to verse 18. He says, I want you to do this so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and and rejoice with you all. Notice he begins with himself. I want you to be obedient, not only in my presence, but also in my absence. I want you to know now, he says, at the end, I want to be proud of you whether I live or whether I die. And this isn't the most important motivation, but it is a motivation that we want to live as those who are faithful to Jesus Christ um, because we know it matters to our ministers and they've been our spiritual fathers and they're not like the dentist they never fix anything that will last for 10 years. They never see anyone leave their company after seeking to give them spiritual encouragement or counsel or perhaps an occasion rebuke. They never watch the back of the person leave the room and think, that's that sorted for the next 10 years. No, they know, as Paul says here, that only the day will declare it. 
And he's, he's wanting these Christians, as it were, as they, as they leave him, to turn round and say to him, Paul, I won't allow you to have run in vain or to labor in vain. And then you see he adds on this right at the end. He says, if that's so, then I'm glad and rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It's not a one-way street. This is something that's shared throughout the whole congregation. This is something for all the Philippians together. And this is the evidence that they've bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. That yes, in apparently mundane things, they're becoming Christ-like. And that in their faithfulness to God's Word, they are shining like lights in a dark place. And they're bound together in this family fellowship of those who love one another and who are loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the end of it all, and this is what banishes our complaining, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It's one more, one more picture of the beauty of a church that can be called by its ministers, my crown and my joy. And that's surely what we want to be. But Paul's point here is we only become that when salvation works out right to our fingertips and right to our lips because it's worked down into our hearts. And because we're thankful for Him, we're patient with one another and thankful for what He has given us as a church family. So may by God's grace, we too become a crown and joy church. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its detail. Thank You for the times in which it touches um, those parts of our lives from which we have excused ourselves. We are, we are surely, with few exceptions, men and women and boys and girls who have grumbled and complained and and thought there was nothing really inconsistent about being a disciple of the Lord Jesus and being a grumbler. And we want to take this exhortation seriously today and its implications for our witness to our Savior. We want to take that seriously too. And we want to encourage our ministers so that they may not run in vain or labor in vain. And we want to share that encouragement with one another so that the ministry, each one of us with the gifts that we have, that the ministry we exercise to one another may not in the day of Jesus Christ be in vain. And so we pray for your help and seek to commit ourselves to every word that has come out of your mouth. Oh God, enable us, we pray, by 
the Spirit of Jesus who dwells within us to be like Jesus, to love Your Word, to love giving detailed obedience to that Word, and in seeing the fruit of that, to love one another more and more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.